From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Okay, it's confession time. There's been a lot of really important news going on in the world, yet this last week or so, the OST team found ourselves talking about the turmoil in Britain. Not Brexit, but Mexit. Or more accurately, the response to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's surprise decision to step back from their duties as senior royals. That move has revealed a range of opinions about monarchy, race, class, and media, and not just in Britain, but here in the U.S. Well, we're going to get below the surface of that this morning with Patrick Allett. He's history professor at Emory University. Good morning. Good morning. And Lisa Respers-France is with us. She's senior entertainment writer for CNN. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. All right. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex apparently surprised everybody when they announced on Instagram that they were carving out a more progressive role in the institution wanted to become financially independent, maybe even split their time between Britain and North America. Patrick, any historic precedent for this among royals? There's a lot of precedent. Uh, back in the 1930s, the king decided to abdicate his throne altogether so that he could marry the uh, the woman he loved, an American, Wallace Simpson. Uh, Princess Diana, Harry's mother, uh, divorced her husband, partly, I think, because they were incompatible and partly because of the intolerable pressure put on her by the paparazzi. So this is one more event in a long history of the human realities bumping up against the institutional requirements. The news is the same week there were wildfires consuming Australia, planes shot down in Tehran, yet the story became a topic of spirited debate in Britain and here. Lisa, why do you think so many are captivated by the family dramas of the royals? Well, we came out of the UK. Um, this country is fairly new. People have a tendency to forget. And I think people are just obsessed with royalty. They're like celebrities, but times 100. So people are just fascinated by being born into a royal family and all that goes into that. And so this story has just been tremendously fascinating. And it's so debatable. It, like, like you said, it's about the monarchy. It's about class. It's about race. It has all the things that titillate us and get us to talk. And people have had so many opinions about it. Originally, I think there was a lot of sympathy. Then the BBC reported that no one apparently in the royal family knew about this. I think that turned the tide. And a lot of responses about, oh, they want the money and the privilege without the responsibilities, you know, poor little prince. How much money are we talking about from British taxpayers, Patrick? Uh, well, it's in the millions. On the other hand, the royal family has to do a lot of work and has to accept the idea that it's on display all the time. So although if you look at it purely as an accountancy matter, you can become indignant about the, the cost of it. Um, a lot comes back in the form of attracting tourists to Britain. I, I certainly think it's misleading to regard royalty as a drain on the, royal, on the nation's finances. If anything, there are people whose service to it do, does more harm than good and brings in more than it sends out. How about that opinion about the Queen? However, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a royal scholarly maid. I have no <laughs> intel on how this all went down. But so many are affronted on behalf of the Queen. I'm, I'm curious, Lisa, why, why people think they know this woman or her thoughts. And this is not someone who's shown herself to be emotionally accessible. This is going to sound horrible, but I feel like people believe that they know the Queen because they watch The Crown. Uh, maybe so. <laughs> Patrick watch, is nodding his head. Right. They watch The Crown, which is a dramatiz dramatization, of course, of the royal family. And they feel like they know everything about her and how she must obviously be thinking and feeling at this moment. But so much is getting lost in the conversation, including the fact that Prince Charles has been saying that he wants to streamline the monarchy. So it, it felt like 
Prince Harry and Meghan were going to have to take a step back anyway. But nobody's really talking about that, it mm-hmm. feels. Well, there's been plenty of speculation as to the whys here in official and social media, including how tabloids have treated Harry and especially Meghan. Here's a clip from a documentary about the Sussexes for ITV. This was from back in October. For me and for, and for my wife, you know, there's a, there's a, of course there's a lot of stuff that hurts, um, especially when the majority of it is untrue. I will not be bullied <laughs> into, into, into playing a game that, that killed my mum. I'm going to put this to you first, Patrick, because you talked about the the unbelievable pressure. That's a pretty damning blow of the paparazzi that the role of the death in his of his mother, former Princess Diana, died in a crash in 97 while being pursued by photographers on motorcycles. What has Harry and Meghan's relationship been with the press and how different than other royals? Well, I think that it's comparable to the others in the sense that the the media are after them all the time and would like to deny them any moment of privacy and they're completely shameless i think the british paparazzi are even more horrible than those of other parts of the world in their predatory shark-like relentless pursuit of the royal family it must have been extremely difficult especially for someone like Meghan markle coming in from outside i mean it's bad enough to have been born to it and raised with it and have the expectation that you're doing it all the time but a new level of pressure, even for someone who's already a movie star, to suddenly be exposed to that degree of scrutiny. And as we heard in the clip there, the, the certain knowledge that much of it's not true, mm-hmm. that any little scrap of rumor is inflated into a, a story as though it were true, it must be extremely uh, painful and, and difficult to deal with. In that same documentary, she did say she was warned by friends the tabloids would tear her apart, but she thought she may have been naive as an American. Uh, there is BuzzFeed actually did a breakdown of the comparison of how she was portrayed in the media compared to her sister-in-law, Kate Middleton. Uh, Lisa, what kind of things did were revealed in that? Well, one of the pictures actually motivated me to write something about race and Meghan Markle. There, the, one of the headlines was talking about Kate lovingly cradling her baby bump. But then they had a headline saying that Meghan Markle was trying to get attention by consistently grabbing her stomach and making everyone aware that she's pregnant. And so the portrayal, the very different portrayal of the two women made me start thinking about how race really factored into this. And so when Kate ate an avocado, she was trying to be healthy. When Megan ate an avocado, there was some nefarious things said behind that. And it, it, it was just so, it, it's, it's so shocking when you see the comparison and you see it in, in black and white, literally. Lisa Vespers, Vespers, France there, sorry about that, senior entertainment writer for CNN. Also with me, Patrick Allett, a history professor at Emory, Emory University. And we're talking about I guess the surprisingly opinionated responses to Prince Harry and his wife Meghan's decision to step back from their senior royal duties. Let's dig into that a little bit, because from the first, when Meghan and Harry went public with their relationship, this was back in November of 2016, tabloids and Twitter exploded with racist remarks. The Daily Mail posted a headline reading, Harry's girl is almost, in parentheses, straight out of Compton. Harry says that is racism. Is that fair? I think that's absolutely fair. Um, I had a lot of blowback and from people who were upset when I wrote about how she's being treated has to do with her race. She claims that she, you know, she claims being biracial, which is, you know, how she identifies. But she's very much being treated like a black woman in that you see these dog whistles and this coded language. And then sometimes not so coded at all. I mean, there was a presenter in the UK that tweeted a picture of a, a chimp. And made a joke about baby Archie being presented to the world. Mm. And so 
that's racist. You know, you can say, oh, I was just making a joke, but it's racist. I've never seen uh, white parents have their child referred to as a chimp. So uh, certainly looking at the comments, you know, that I've seen in response to articles, seeing how people judge her, it's amazing, first of all, how convinced people are that they have an accurate read in their mind. And again, that coded language. What did it mean for the monarchy to have a biracial woman and a divorcee and an American in the mix? Well, it's a a public relations masterstroke, really, because what it means is that anyone who loves the monarchy, which is to say most of the nation, is immediately confronted with the idea that it's got to love a member of a population group, which until recently wasn't part of British life. I mean, I think one of the great differences between Britain and America is that Britain only very recently became a multiracial society. It's really since the 1950s and the end of the British Empire that citizens from the West Indies and from India and Pakistan have come to Britain, and the Britons had to go through a a transformation of its understanding of race relations very recently by comparison with America, which has a a long and tragic history of it. So you think, how do you think they're faring in that transformation? Well, it's a very mixed picture. there's, there, there isn't, I mean, the, the good side of it is that there's much less of a long heritage of discrimination. There certainly has been plenty of discrimination recently, but I think also a general willingness on the part of every, or nearly everyone in public life to say, this is a burden, we mustn't follow America down a very baleful road, we've got to do it better. And the fact that uh, Harry decided to marry someone who was biracial, I think was a source of Uh, It was an encouraging thing, even though, unfortunately, there are going to be people who will exploit it in the wrong way. Mm. The royal family, famously private. The Queen Mother apparently had a motto, never complain, never explain. So what does it say that Harry and Meghan have been relatively open with the media? It's one of the reasons why I'm so bothered by uh, Megan being blamed for this step back because Harry Even calling it Megxit right. sort of makes it about her. Exactly. Right? And Harry has been very open from the beginning that he was not going to be your typical monarch. He's not going to be your typical prince at all. As you just brought up, I mean, he married a woman of color. No one had done that in the royal family before. And so I feel like there is like this kind of sense of them saying we're just going to be who we are and you guys are just going to have to deal with it. Um, And so they when they came out and made this surprise announcement, it wasn't a surprise to some people who felt like, well, he already let us know that he did not love this type of lifestyle. And he definitely seems like he's trying to protect his family from the fate that his mother you know, had to deal with. Well, and I actually think of that picture uh, after his at his mother's funeral. You know, there's a little boy following the casket. No one's holding his hand. No. You know, there's no sort of uh, emotional acknowledgement of what went on. Um, Prince Harry, of course, is among the most popular of the royals. Both of you have said that his wedding was wa- their wedding was watched by 29 million Americans, generated an estimate one billion pounds in revenue from tourism. He also confirmed in October some personal tension with his brother, William. So is the royal family's reputation or image or even even revenues at risk if their beloved grandson buggers off to, to, to Canada? <laughs> no, not really. The, the whole point about monarchy is that it, it's based upon the idea of human inequality. Obviously, one of the things that's had to happen in recent decades is that it's had to adapt to a much more democratic world. But... The the point about the monarchy is that it's a way of separating um, the head of state from the head of government. 
and if conferring upon the head of state the idea that they're not equal. The whole point about them is that they're, they're not equal, they're different. When I was growing up in Britain, nobody talked about human equality. The, the, the subject just never came up. And the difficulty, I think, now in adapting, for the monarchy particularly, has been how does it operate in a world where clearly they are given special opportunities and special privileges, but also special responsibilities? How do they combine that with the idea that they're presiding over a democratic society? In a way, they're problems which are unanswerable. Although in the Globe and Mail yesterday, there was an opinion piece. This is the news, one of the newspapers of record in Canada. And they said, no, the royals can't come here. This is, you know, we are separate from them. Any, yeah, how is Canada feeling about all this? <laughs> It's funny because you have some Canadians who are thrilled and say, oh, she must have fallen in love with us when she was filming Suits here. And you have others who are like, yeah, no, we don't need her. She can go to Los Angeles. So it's it's mixed. People, I just feel like it, people have such a visceral reaction to their life and to this couple. It's interesting. Either you really love them or you seem to just not really want to deal with them at all. Or or you think, well, there are a lot of other things going on in the world. Right. These are rich people problems. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> so what do you think? Do you see this as the future of monarchy, you know, designing your own sort of role, or is this the first domino to fall in their eventual demise? It's part of a continuing process. The long history of the royal family shows dozens of cases of people uh, acting badly or acting strangely or not following the conventions. And it's also true that because Harry's only sixth in line to the throne anyway, it's not as though the king is going, as he did in 1936, or as though the heir to the throne is going. He's unlikely ever to have been king anyway. In fact, he wouldn't have been unless there was an absolute catastrophe. So it doesn't really matter. It's a tempest in a teapot. Patrick Allady's history professor at Emory University. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And Lisa Respers France, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Lisa is senior entertainment writer for CNN. Coming up, should Georgia accept more refugees? What well, we're going to get perspective from a conservative businessman from Clarkston when on second thought continues. Stay with us. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Back in September, President Trump signed an executive order requiring state and local governments to consent in writing to allow refugee resettlement inside of their borders. The deadline for officials to opt in was originally January 21st. Well, that order was struck down in a U.S. district court earlier this week. By that time, Texas had announced that it would reject more refugees. Forty-two other states had agreed to accept new resettlements. Georgia and seven other states were still undeclared. Clarkston, Georgia, has resettled tens of thousands of newly arrived refugees. It's sometimes called the Ellis Island of the South. And while that term may signal a liberal enclave, well, I'm joined on the line by a conservative businessman who's made a living supporting Clarkston's refugee community. Chris Chancy is founder of Amplio Recruiting, which connects refugees to quality jobs in the metro Atlanta era, area. And he's joining us via Skype. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you grew up in a small town in southern Georgia. What drew you to Clarkston? Yeah, I grew up in, in Waycross, Georgia. Uh, and, uh, you know, the community I grew up in is a, is a great place to grow up. But for the most part, um, everyone shares the same kind of beliefs about life and, and culture and, you know, speaks the same, acts the same. And, and so it was kind of a winding road that landed my wife and I uh, to move into the verge of the Clarkston community and um, and begin to experience, um, you know, what an incredibly diverse community it is. We, we actually did it by accident. 
And uh, I remember uh, ignorantly saying, "There's probably some good some good ethnic restaurants in this town." <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, now we can call some of our best friends, uh, people from from all over the world, from from Iraq and Ethiopia and uh, Bhutan, and and uh, it's been a crazy journey over the last several years. So after about a year after arriving in Clarkson, you founded Amplio. This is a human resources group that connects refugees to local jobs. You know, you identify as a conservative Republican, voted for Trump in 2016. So this is just about a year after launching your business. He ran on traditionally conservative positions, hardline on immigration. So how do you reconcile this goal of, of, of working with refugees and trying to provide stability for them with this platform? Well, you know, we always saw the economic opportunity and, and really try to focus on just the economics of the situation that, you know, even in, in 2016, this was the case. It's even worse now. There's seven million open jobs in the U.S. And as a conservative, um, I know that focusing on the economy and seeing the growth of the economy is is one of the key priorities for Trump. And that was one of the uh, things that he ran on in his his platform and his campaign. And and so we just felt like, you know, at this moment in time in 2016, unfortunately, it's still the case today. That there is an ignorance around immigration and and the ways that uh, refugees and immigrants can contribute to the local economy. Um, I, our hope was that our business could change that and that we could put a different narrative uh, in place. Right now, the thought is by most Americans that when you hear the term refugee, you're either talking about someone who's a charity case or someone who's a terrorist threat. Mm-hmm. And so what we've been able to try to prove over the last several years is neither one of those are true. In a time like this, not everyone who shares that point of view would be vocal about their position. What made you decide to be to share your perspective more broadly? You know, I think when we when you when you meet someone and you begin to hear their story, it changes the headlines and makes it very personal. And so we're at a point where um, our, our own personal reputation is set aside because we see the impact that the refugee workforce can have in our nation, in our state, in our local communities. And we've seen that time and time again with the companies we've worked with. So we've placed over 5,000 refugees into jobs with around 300 companies in the Atlanta area. And so we've seen this dramatic impact of these individuals uh, that they have in their communities and, and certainly on the businesses that they get to work for. And so it's just something that we want to blast from the rooftops. It's a it's a it's a game changing perspective to recognize the contributions that these individuals desire to have and do have when we give them that opportunity. Man, you've been blasting it from the rooftops yourself. Came out with a book last year called Refugee Workforce: The Economic Case for Hiring the Displaced, which makes this case that refugees can and do play an important role in addressing labor shortages around the country. So, what does that look like in Georgia specifically? Well, we look at the U.S. as a whole. There's seven million open jobs around uh, the U.S. that will go unfilled this year. Uh, but and Georgia is really a microco- microcosm of that, right? There's there's uh, a, a number of jobs in manufacturing, construction, healthcare, and hospitality that will go unfilled in our state. And our our governor and and you know, and, and many of uh, the individuals in the in the public in public service in our state are doing a great job by attracting businesses to our state. For several years now, we've been the number one state to do business. But at some point, we run into a brick wall if we don't have individuals who are dependable and who are legal and who are motivated to step into those roles and, and contribute. 
to these new companies that we're attracting. So uh, I think it's it's just having a better understanding, recognition that these individuals, immigrants and refugees, have value to add, and they have an economic uh, you know surplus to bring to our state. If we can recognize that, but if we don't, if we simply just see them as a burden in some capacity or a threat to our national security, uh, then we're going to continue to approach this discussion in the wrong way. How do you discuss this with friends, family members, you know, if you're uh, other conservatives in Georgia who have a different point of view? Yeah, thanks for that question. You know, I think that most of, of our friends and family and even, you know, I think most of our state would say, we're not polarized to this one view or this or this completely opposite viewpoint. Um, you know, I can say that I'm I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican. I can even say I support Trump in the office of president. However, I, I, I vehemently disagree with the policies being created around immigration and um, and how they're approaching this refugee situation. So I think that is an American right that we have. Um, there, there should be respect for the office, but it's okay to have you know, to have differing viewpoints. And unfortunately, we're in a place in our politics where you have to be, we, we at least feel like you have to be one or the other. So most, we have these conversations with individuals. Um, it makes sense, right? I mean, these are individuals who are legal and, uh, and they want to contribute. Why would we not allow them to do so? So we just try to focus on the economics. And when we do that, the, the, more, the moral argument, the ethical argument, the political argument, kind of falls to the wayside. And there's an understanding from both sides of the aisle, from people that have all different backgrounds and representations that this just makes sense. It's logical and it's a need for our state. You did, uh, Chris, recently speak at the UN Commission on Refugees or UNHCR. You spoke in Geneva, Switzerland. What did you learn there about refugee settlement internationally and the role that the U.S. plays? Yeah, this was a really fascinating point for me. So we know in the U.S. that uh, over time there's there's really been an effort to decrease the amount of spending that is is budgeted towards refugee resettlement. And that's kind of been done in some somewhat backhanded ways. But the essential goal, it seems like from the outside, is to dec- decrease the budget. And it's simply kind of a monetary issue. But uh, I got to speak in Geneva, Switzerland, at the, at the uh, Global Refugee Forum at the United Nations and in meetings there were the UNHCR, which is essentially the world's refugee agency. They are the entity responsible for helping to provide safety and security for displaced people around the globe. And basically, they're supposed to solve the refugee crisis. And, and so um, this is a nonprofit that um, you know, is working all over the globe. So I'm, I'm, I'm meeting with them, and they, they hit me with this bombshell. This is not something I've heard of before being in the U.S., but... The U.S. government is responsible for more than half of the annual operating budget for UNHCR. Mm. So it represents over a billion dollars the U.S. government is donating to the UNHCR to effectively say, you are the ones tasked with solving this issue. Go figure it out. We support you. In fact, we support you way above and beyond what any other government uh, or nation does in, in the world. And so we expect you to figure it out. Here's some money to go and do it. We just don't want to have to deal with it on U.S. soil. And I think that still just undermines this this idea that uh, there's no recognition of the economic impact that these individuals can bring. Well, Chris Chancy, thank you so much for speaking with us and for your work as founder of Amplio Recruiting in Clarkston, Georgia. Appreciate your time. Thank you. 
The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday is coming up on Monday. The King Center announced that this year's theme is the beloved community, the fierce urgency of now. The Reverend Dr. Bernice King, CEO of the King Center, says her father's message of the beloved community operates out of unconditional love, adding that it's not about who deserves anything. It's about all human beings having an inherent worth and value. Zernona Clayton embodies those values. She worked with Dr. King and Coretta Scott King at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in the late 60s. In 1967, she became the first African-American in the Southeast to have her own television program and served 30 years as an executive at Turner Broadcasting System and founded the Trumpet Awards to recognize accomplishments of African-Americans. Zernona Clayton joined me and three other panelists in front of a live audience at GBB Atlanta for a screening of An American Story, Race, Amity, and the Other Tradition. The discussion turned to how conversations with people normally considered other can plant the seeds of amity. I asked Ms. Clayton about her remarkable relationship with Calvin Craig, a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan who credits her with his decision to denounce the Klan in 1968. Sir Nona, there's a from 1968. There was a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan who actually denounced the Klan, and he credited you with that turnaround. How did that happen? Was that a conversation? Yeah, a lot of things. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had a program here in Atlanta that uh, Mayor um, Ivan Allen at the time um, pulled together for Atlanta, and they had. Of five different communities that they were trying to experience to see um, if what you have to do to pull people together. And so since they were diverse groups, uh, he thought that I would do well being the moderator of whatever of the group. And he says, I mean, of the groups, there were five different uh, communities. And he said, but there's one problem. So what's that? He said, uh, one of the members of the group is a Ku Klux Klan person. And do you think you'd be uncomfortable? I said, I don't know what they look like, because I've never seen it except white robe, but I don't know what they really look like in person anyway, so I don't know how to be afraid or not. But um, I finally met them. And the next day after we had this nighttime meeting, he came to my office and sat on. He said, Miss Clayton, he always called me Miss Clayton, and that's significant. I'll tell you why. But he said, um, do you know how many colored people own their own homes in uh, Detroit? And I said, no. Do you know how many colored people own their own homes in Yazoo, Mississippi? No, I don't. And the answer that he gave me was there were more colored people in Mississippi owning their own homes than there were in the free north. Hmm. We thought that you go north, you find freedom, you could do well. Mm-hmm. But he says, see, they do better in servitude. And he would bow his head all the time. You agree? No, I don't agree. (laughs) That happened every day. Um, And I finally said, you're taking numbers and uh, making them work for yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew that if I confronted him and battled with him, we'd go nowhere. But I'd listen to him talk crazy uh, (laughs) and then uh, give my point of view. But without making the story real long, um, he started telling people about me that I didn't know. Uh, I had a a white man call me on the phone and said, 
I'd like to take you to lunch. And I said, well, I don't go to lunch with men I don't know. And he said, well, I've got to meet you. A burning desire. And I said, well, what's so imperative about this? And what's so compelling that you must meet me? He said, I've known Calvin Craig for 18 years. I've never heard him say anything decent about a black person. And I just want to see for myself if you are black. And I said, well, I'm black, but I'm not going to lunch with you, you know. But every day he'd go home and tell his family, you know, that Miss Clayton is a wonderful person. Every day, I understand the family. I've become very close to the family now. But every day he would tell them how wonderful I was. And um, one, he was a deacon in his church, chairman of the deacon board, and was a Baptist church. And I said, well, now, I'm a Baptist. And I said, what Bible do you all read in your church? <laughs> and found out we had the same book. And I said, oh, well, it says in my Bible that you clothe the naked, feed the hungry. And it doesn't say if they only look like you. Mm. So what do you do now? And, um, and he would laugh it all off. But I said, how can you stand before a congregation? You're the chairman of the deacon board. You're a Christian. How can you look at that pulpit, I mean, from that pulpit, knowing that you're filled with bigotry and standing there representing God? And he kind of, you know, felt uncomfortable about that. Well, uh, this went on for a long time. And finally, one day, every Friday, he would ask me, what are you doing this weekend? I said, well, I got a dinner party, and I've got to go home and get ready. And he said, well, who's coming? And I'd name some of my guests, and he said, those are white people. And I said, yes, I have white friends. Really? Oh, Miss Clayton, I could never eat at your house. I said, Mr. Craig, I've never invited you to my house. (laughs) (laughs) And so this particular Friday, he said, "Um, I've got a secret to tell you. And I said, okay. He said, but I can't tell you. And I said, well, he's playing games. And I left him. I went shopping on a Saturday, came back home, and when I turned to my street, I lived on a quiet street, I saw all these cars in front of my house. And since I live in the hood, I thought I'd been burglarized. But <laughs> they were there because Mr. Craig had a press conference that day and announced that he was coming out of the Klan and credited this black woman with na- changing his negative attitude. Yeah. And I was that black person. Mm-hmm. It's such an amazing story, but you are talking about seeing each other on a human level, and I'm glad you said that about the data. We all have data. We've got arrows we can pull out of our quiver of, you did this to me, and you did this to me, and I know this fact, and you know that fact, and I don't think anybody actually gets anywhere with that. And Don, Let me interrupt. Yes, please. One part of my story that I think is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I said to Mr. Craig is that um, when you go home, go in the bathroom, close the door. That's a very private area. And ask yourself, you don't have to talk to me, ask yourself, you're taking your children on Friday nights, put them on white robes to go out to do bodily harm. Uh, You're standing before the congregation with Christ in your heart and evil in your mind. Mm -hmm. So ask yourself, what kind of Christian am I and what kind of parent am I? And you can come up with an answer. You know, he probably did that. And probably realizing that he's passing bigotry on to the next generation. And he's also discrediting his love and relationship with God. Yeah. That's what I think. 
please do join me in thanking all of my panelists here tonight. And thank you so much for being here. Zernona Clayton, civil rights leader, colleague and friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King, speaking at GPB on Race Amity Day in 2019. She is founder, president and CEO of the Trumpet Awards Foundation. Even after Calvin Craig died in 1998, his daughter, Gail Craig Mays, avoided talking about his association with the Klan. That's until 2010 when she contacted Zernona Clayton and started an entirely new conversation. Up next, this year's Oscar nominations were not greeted as signs of equality. Stick around for that conversation after the break, as Mahalia Jackson, a favorite of Dr. King, leads us out with Keep Your Hands on the Plow. This is On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Last year, Jackie Cooper blew up. We spoke to the (laughs) 77-year-old retiree from Perry, Georgia, after his weekly entertainment rundown captured the attention of a YouTube superstar. Jackie's weekly viewers catapulted from 146 viewers to well over 146,000. He told me that his neighbors in Perry were not giving him the celebrity treatment. So they're not letting you cut in line at the supermarket or anything uh, no, like that? No, 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 oh no. And no. And nothing more than a senior discount. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie's fame as an online entertainment critic has only grown. Today we're leaning on him to talk about award season and the fierce criticism that followed the Academy Awards nominations announced on Monday. Jackie Cooper, so great to speak with you again. So great to be here, Virginia. Thank you for having me. Well, you were among many to tweet or poster observations of snubs this year. The Academy took an awful lot of flack when Oscars So White hashtag surfaced. This year, the flap is overwhelmingly white and male. That's the criticism. Overall, what's your impression? White and male. Yeah, there you go. What's your impression overall? Well, you know, this to me is a very controversial subject because, you know, you do want diversity. You do want everyone to have a fair shot. But you also want everything to be the best of the best. Hmm. Myself, I was really upset that Lupita Nyong'o, who played two roles in Us, and to me was award-worthy in both performances, was left off the best actress list. Mm-hmm. You know, regardless of, of her race, etc., she was one of the best, in my opinion. So I'm, you know, I was expecting her nomination. I didn't get her nomination. I was therefore disappointed. Yeah. Well, Jordan Peele's film, Us, was pretty much ignored. It's Absolutely. And this, it was a tremendous movie. Well, and this is a couple years after Get Out was nominated for Best Picture, a number of awards. Why do you think it didn't impress Academy voters? I always think that maybe it came out too early in the year hmm. because it seems that they hold back, you know, the awards-worthy film are released in the in the fall and winter, right. and maybe that was the case. But it, the strange thing, though, is Parasite, the Korean-made film that is nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, etc., has overtones of a Jordan Peele film. Right. It's got the horror element. And so, you know, I thought, my gosh, they expected and respected it in Parasite, but us, which was a tremendously effective movie for Jordan Peele, got ignored. 
Well, so leading the headlines for snubs, Jennifer Lopez considered a contender for Best Supporting Actress for the film Hustlers. Here she is. There's a clip playing Ramona. She's kind of a mama bear to women working at a New York City strip club. We got to start thinking like these Wall Street guys. You see what they did to this country? They stole from everybody. Hardworking people lost everything. And not one of these douchebags went to jail. Not one. Is that fair? You ever think about when they come into the club? That's stolen money. So this was a pretty surprising role for her after she's, you know, done a lot of formulaic rom-com movies for years. And kind of, you know, moderately successful TV series, you know, judging on American Idol, all of those things. This This was showing that she is a legitimately, you know, talented actress. And I think that most people you know, in the industry and outside who keep up with them did expect her to get a nomination. It was almost a given. But she has shown, I thought, so much taste. She has not commented. She has not said, poor me, why did they leave me out, et cetera. You know, she's just stayed silent and let other people complain for her. Not that she encouraged it, but it just happened. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, sense of you're ignoring Latinx in the Hollywood milieu, I guess. So she didn't say anything. It's interesting in the age of social media, some of the people who did get nominated, of course, graciously accepted. And some of those who didn't, uh, some more graciously than others. I loved Adam Sandler. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who everybody thought would be nominated for Uncut Gems. And his comment was, you know, I don't have to wear a tie anymore. (laughs) You know, I don't have to go through all that award hullabaloo and circus. I can just be myself, go back to being myself. But then he gave a big shout out. To Mama, which was Kathy Bates, who played his mama in Waterboy, mm-hmm. which I thought was really a, a, a nice thing to do. And she responded, you, you was robbed. You was robbed, said Kathy Bates, who was nominated <laughs> uh, for her role in the film Richard Jewell. Also a film that didn't catch on that much. And that's obviously a movie of local interest about the Absolutely. Atlanta bomber. Do you think the movie was hurt by the controversy over whether or not he was accurately portraying the AJC reporter Kathy Scruggs? Well, of course, that was the big thing. That did cause controversy. Uh, And she's not here. She is deceased and is not here to defend herself, which is also a bad thing. It was a good movie, in in my opinion. I, I thought Paul Walter Hauser, it was one of those cases of, he was born to play that role. Hmm. You just can hardly imagine him in anything else. I looked him up. He's got like seven new movies coming out. It's going to be interesting to see you know, how he appears in other roles. Well, this was pretty well summed up when Issa Rae, deadpanning as she announced the Best Director nominees on the Oscars live stream, said, Congratulations to those men. Not a single woman director nominated for the second year in the row. Now, in the past, Academy voters said they just didn't have a lot of women directors to nominate because there were so few. How about this year? What comes to mind for you? Out of the gate, Greta Gerwig. She is on the map. She's respected as actress, screenplay writer, and director. Well, here's a clip from one of the nominated actresses, Saoirse Ronan in Little Women, along with the great Meryl Streep. Thank you, Aunt March, for your employment and your many kindnesses, but I intend to make my own way in the world. <laughs> no, no one makes their own way. Not really. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. But you are not married, Aunt March. Well, that's because I'm rich. 
A clip there from Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig, who did not receive an Oscar nomination for Best Director. The film was nominated for Best Picture, Costume Design, Best Score, an actress in a leading role and in a supporting role. The movie Little Women certainly received a lot of acclaim. It's got you know nominations for Saoirse Ronan and also for Florence Pugh uh, in the film, and nothing for her. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, I think that is a legitimate complaint because I, I just thought that there was room for her. She was just as good, and some I could or argue that she was a little bit better. And it did just seem like a slap. Mm. But the question again goes back, did somebody, you know, in their mind say, I'm not going to vote for her because she's a woman? Yeah. Well, this year, uh, also, Marielle Heller for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, not nominated Best Director not nominated. as Best Director Lulu Wang for The, the Farewell. Well, Melina the Farewell Ma- got snubbed in everything. Absolutely. And Melina Matsukis for Queen and Slim. Lorene Scafaria for Hustlers, all great female directors. We're speaking with Jackie Cooper. He's the host and YouTube sensation of Entertainment Rundown. He's from Perry, Georgia, speaking with us about this year's Academy Award nominees and really award season altogether. Some some notable snubs of women and people of color. That is certainly something that people on the Internet are reacting to. But Jackie, you, you also, in defense of white men, some notable snubs here, including, as you mentioned before, Adam Sandler for his role. A tremendous job that he did in Uncut gems. Uh, also, Noah Baumbach, whose film <laughs> whose film, A Marriage Story, was on Netflix. Now, in the past, there's been predictions of a Netflix backlash, which seemed to have been premature. Netflix had more nominations than any of the major studios this year. What do you think is going on there? I think that, you know, they've broken through the wall, that Netflix films are going to be accepted. You know, I will be interested to see what the story is after the awards are announced. If Irishman does not come through with you know some awards, Martin Scorsese for director, Irishman for picture, and then the two supporting actor nominations that it got, is it going to be said, oh, well, you see, they don't take Netflix movies seriously? You know, that argument will be made either way. If they, if they do win awards, then of course people say, see, that validates everything. You, you're not going to have this issue of whether or not a Netflix uh, film can win. All right. So let's switch tracks here for the most deserved nominations. So who do you think really did earn it and got, and got nominated? Well, I certainly think that Joaquin Phoenix Earned his nomination, and I, when I saw you know the Joker, I was just our Joker. I was just blown away by his performance. It was just so unlike anything you've seen, and it was a, a, a true descent into madness with that character Arthur Fleck. And then you know he just portrayed every aspect of it. So you know I was so glad that that he got nominated, and I I really do think that he earned his his nomination. The same thing, I I was so glad to see Cynthia Arriva uh, get nominated for Harriet. You know, there was a lot of chatter on on the social media about the fact that she was British, that what was she doing playing an American heroine, and, you know, et cetera. But I think her performance was so complete and so total and so impressive that she kind of squelched, you know, that criticism. She was certainly deserving. Let's hear a clip of Cynthia Revo in the role of Harriet Tubman in the film Harriet. You got lucky, Harriet. 
And there's nothing more you can do. Don't you tell me what I can't do. I made it this far on my own. God was watching, but my feet was my own. Running, bleeding, climbing, nearly drowned. Nothing to eat for days and days, man. I made it. So don't you tell me what I can't do. A clip there from the film Harriet, which is about Harriet Tubman. Jackie, what else stands out to you about the nominations? The comeback stories. Renee Zellweger, you know, they had counted her out. Right. She was down for the count. Uh, she had had Chicago. She'd had Cold Mountain. She was just at the height of her career. And then it was like the bottom dropped out. There was, you know, and she, and she disappeared. She made some obscure movies, but she came roaring back in the film Judy and just threw herself into it. And Hollywood loves a comeback story mm-hmm. that's going to stand her in good stead, you know, with the voters. Yeah, and, she, the Golden Globes is not always a predictor, but there has been consistency in the actor and actress categories in the past couple of years. Best actor for Joaquin Phoenix, for Joker, and for Renee Zellweger for portraying Judy Garland. Who are the other comebacks that you're thinking of in this year's well, race? Let me just interject this, though. Karen Egerton, though, won the musical comedy actor, and he's not even nominated. Right. And Aquafina won the, you know, uh, Golden Globe, and she also is not nominated. Mm-hmm. So, but I think I think Brad Pitt is a is a comeback story. Not all of his movies have been hits in the last few years. He still was a star, you know, at the top, but just had kind of dulled, gone through some you know awkwardness in his personal life, and then came back and was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio's character stunt double. And it was like the old Brad Pitt had been frozen in time and they thought him out. <laughs> and he came and, and gave this performance and everybody loved it and loved him. So, you know, I think he's going to cruise right on in t- to the Oscars uh, with that goodwill mm-hmm. um, surrounding him. Yeah, so I could. I couldn't help but notice that when he was accepting his award at the Golden Globes, of course, they flashed to Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> they, they, they won't let him forget that one. And they have not been able to sever that tie. You know, I'm, I'm old enough. You're not old enough to remember the Eddie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds, Elizabeth Taylor uh-huh. thing. And it was almost history repeats itself with Jennifer Aniston, Angelina Jolie, and Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt has come out of that. All three of them have come out of it still with their careers intact and loyalty based on you know, different circumstances. Right. Looks like the media is just stuck on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, again, in this day and age, we thrive on that. Mm-hmm. And we have social media to enhance everything. We can study that you know, shot of Jennifer Aniston being in the audience and, oh, look, she moved her finger toward her right eye or whatever. It's, you know, it's down to the minutia. <laughs> How about, of course, Academy voters have to make choices. Have you thought, Jackie, about which do you think should have been left out in favor of those performances that you did want to see nominated? I, I really was surprised that, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, was in there. I just, I, I, I knew, you know, Brad Pitt was going to get in there, 
But it's a, it's a big age of Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. You know, this, and of course he said, this is, this is you know, my ninth film. I'm only going to make ten films. So this was a big thing. Uh, whether he sticks to that or not is unknown. But you know, I was surprised with him. I was really surprised uh, with Charlize Theron. I did not, you know, I thought she did a great job as you know, Megyn Kelly and Bombshell. But it wasn't the kind of performance that I thought would draw that much attention. But she has been a master of, of she's really been out there beating the drums, you know, for this film, you know, on just about every talk show you could imagine. And she comes across well, and she, you know, she talks about how she got absorbed by the character and then also, you know, how they physically altered her features to make her look like Kelly. Mm -hmm. So, but still that's, you know, altering features is not a performance. (laughs) And to me, the the movie and the performance were good, but not outstanding. Well, Jackie, I'm looking, I'm looking at best film and, and some of those other nominations that you talked about. Uh, Let's see, Ford versus Ferrari about cars, the Irishman. It's an old mobster movie, Joker about incels. Once upon a time in Hollywood, the golden, very male era of Hollywood, and then 1917, a war film. You think maybe we can get beyond some of these subjects and push for films about things that are less predictable? Well, you know, to me, Marriage Story was that unpredictable film. It was about a divorce, but it's a love story. And people that I've talked to either loved it or hated it. You know, they loved how much it affects you as a viewer, and they hate it because of the way it affects you as a, a viewer. Huh. Uh, you know, I've had people say, you know, why would I want to sit there for two hours and just be depressed for two hours? And I'm saying, on the other hand, because because it shows you real life, and it shows you a glimmer of hope in the worst of times. Mm-hmm. It was just it was just a, a beautiful film. You know, whether or not it, you know it actually was the story. Noah Baumbach was married to Jennifer Jason Lee. They had a son, and if it was their story, well, he really put himself out there to bring it to life. But it's just a beautiful film, and it it's, it it stands out to me among this list that you know that you just named as being something slightly different. Well, Jackie, if we were to leave with a song that represented one of the snubs, what would you like to hear? Well, I'd like to hear "Into the Unknown" because Frozen Two did not get nominated for Best Animated <laughs> Film. I thought it would be at the very top of the list and left off completely. So. We are wandering into the unknown. (laughs) Yeah, that was a bit of a shocker. But the song Into the Unknown from Frozen 2 was indeed nominated for Best Original Song. So let's hear that as we say goodbye to Jackie Cooper. So long, Virginia. Thank you so much. Jackie Cooper, he's a lawyer and an author from Perry and a YouTube star everywhere for his weekly entertainment rundown. He doesn't just cover movies, by the way, books and television shows. You can find a link to watch them at gpbnews.org. And we'd love to know what you think of this year's Oscar nominations. What are some of the performances that you think got left out? What would you rather see on that list? You can reach us on our Facebook page, and we may just read your comment live on the air, or you can go to Twitter at OST Talk. 
On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. Thought.